May I invite you to turn with me to the seventh chapter of the book of Daniel, Daniel 7. Had a friend stop me in the hall this morning and uh, tell me that she had a terrible dream last night. She dreamed that uh, I was preaching on this passage. And uh, in the middle of the message, asked her to come up to the front and interpret it for us. (laughs) Which may say something about uh, your confidence in my capacity to interpret this section of Daniel. We have come to... We have come to a, a very difficult part of the book to understand. And I want you to understand that I'm struggling with it as, as well as you. The first six chapters of the book of Daniel are stories. They're easy to understand. There are six stories, discrete stories, though they're interrelated somewhat. The last six chapters of the book, from chapter 7 on through chapter 12, have to do with visions and dreams and predictions. And uh, there we run into into some difficulty. These uh, chapters fascinate us because we'd like to know what's going to happen around the corner, what our ultimate destiny will be, but uh, they're very difficult to understand. There's a Chinese proverb that goes, it's very difficult to prophesy, especially with respect to the future. And uh, most of us uh, can identify. We have very good hindsight, 2020 hindsight, but our foresight is not good at all. We'd like to know what, what's coming around the corner, what's coming up. And these are the chapters that deal with uh, the future. So they, uh, they're intriguing. They're very interesting to us. The book of Daniel is uh, a type of literature that we call apocalyptic literature. Uh, It's unfamiliar to us, unless you've read Daniel and the book of Revelation, but it was quite familiar to the people of this time. It's a picture book, basically. Truth is conveyed through symbols and pictures. And it's not always easy to tell precisely what the pictures uh, mean. We can guess, and some of our guesses can be uh, fairly accurate, but uh, we can't always be certain. I always think of, of Daniel... Uh, as I think of Oliphant's uh, cartoons, if you see a, a picture of a donkey and an elephant doing combat, doing, you know, involved in conflict, you understand he's not talking about donkeys and elephants. He's talking about political parties. And that's the sort of uh, thing we have to do to the book of Daniel. When we look at these symbols, we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean? What do the pictures mean? And uh, that's where our problems begin to arise. We're going to disagree. Please don't take what I tell you as gospel, always, where the script, where the text is clear. I'll tell you where I think it's clear, where it's not. We're going to disagree. We even disagree among our staff. We go over these chapters, and there are maybe three or four different views. Very often our views are divergent, because we can't always be certain. But there are broad themes that are very clear, and those I'll try to, uh, to give you. Let's begin with chapter 7, verse 1. Uh, Daniel had a dream in the first year of Belshazzar, which would put this chapter about 50 years after chapter 2, or at the uh, end of the Babylonian Empire. Belshazzar, as you know, was the last emperor, last king of Babylon. kingdom is uh, very much in decline. Daniel could see the uh, handwriting on the wall, as Belshazzar saw it later. He realized that Babylon's time was up and that Israel would soon be returned from exile. Jeremiah predicted that within 70 years of the exile, the beginning of the exile, they would return to rebuild the city. They're getting very close to that time. Happened early in the reign of Cyrus, who was the next king. 
So Daniel must have been pondering these themes, the return of uh, Judah, Judea to uh, Jerusalem. And he had a dream. Literally, he saw a dream. These uh, men are prophets. They are seers. They saw things that other people didn't, didn't see. And what Daniel saw was a series of visions that passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. So he wrote down for us the substance of his dream. Not all the details, but the essential uh, contents of the dream. Now, I'm not going to take time to read the uh, verses uh, that follow through verse 14, but I'll tell you what he saw. He saw the four winds of heaven playing on the great sea. Now, whenever you read about four winds of heaven in this apocalyptic literature, it almost always is referring to heavenly forces, divine agencies that are working upon human affairs, within human affairs. So these winds blow, they stir up the sea. The sea is a picture of humanity, the mass of, of, uh, of people in, in, our, in our world. And then he sees emerging uh, from this, uh, this sea of humanity, four beasts. The first is like a lion, except it has wings. It's a great winged lion that... Uh, after a while, has its wings plucked off, it's caused to stand on its feet, and it's given the heart of a man. It sounds like the uh, Tin Woodman of Oz. And then he sees a second beast, which is like a bear, not like our uh, harmless uh, black bears, but uh, one of these large brown Asian bears, much like our grizzly bears. It's a predator. And there's three, li- uh, three uh, uh, ribs in its mouth, which represent a prior kill, victims of a prior hunt. And he's told to eat his fill of flesh, that is, to consume the uh, three ribs. So he's, he's predacious. He's, uh, he's a, a cruel, a vicious beast. After that I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. It has four wings, which enables it to move rapidly, and it has four heads. And then an interesting statement is, is made. It, it says it was given authority to rule, and that is it, it's subject to an unnamed power. And after that, uh, he sees a fourth beast, which is a, it is, it's a nondescript beast. He can't quite put into words what it's like. He doesn't identify with any particular animal. The reason is that it's a composite. When you turn to the book of Revelation, you look at chapter 13, this same animal is described as having feet like a bear, as fixed claws, as a bear does, as the body of a leopard and the mouth of a lion. So this beast embodies characteristics of the beasts that uh, precede it. But Daniel simply describes it as a, as a different beast. Terrifying, frightening, very powerful, with large iron teeth, crushed and devoured its victims and trampled them underfoot. And it has ten horns projecting from its head. So uh, Daniel fixes on the horns. They they seem unusual to him. He says, while I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn, a little one. Reading verse 8. Which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. So he sees this arrangement of ten horns. A little horn projects through the head, and it uproots three of the horns as it emerges. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that brags. Some of you women say, I know who that is. That's my husband. And then as he continues to, to, to view these visions, he sees thrones set up quickly with noise. There's, there's a, lot, a, lot of, 
rapid motion, great deal of clatter as these thrones are set up, but they're not uh, occupied. No one is seated on the thrones. And then a very, very old man, one who's described here as the Ancient of Days, takes a seat. He looks like Father Time. He has a long white beard, white hair. A river of fire flows out from the throne. He's attended by thousands upon thousands, literally myriads. It is an unnumbered host of retainers that are gathered around this uh, elderly uh, gentleman. And the court takes its seat, and the books of evidence, the written evidence, is produced, and Judgment Day begins. Court is in session, the Honorable Ancient of Days presiding. And then he says, as I continue to watch, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking, I kept looking, until, until, it's an important word, keep that in mind, the beast was slain, not the little horn, but the beast, and his body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. And then parenthetically in verse 12, the other beasts, the three that precede the fourth animal, are stripped of their authority. But they are allowed to live for a period of time. That is, they live in another form. They lose their power, but they don't cease to exist. Something about these, uh, some characteristics of these animals flow into the, into the next animal. And then he says, in my vision I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. It's a common idiom in Aramaic and in Hebrew for man. All the word means. We shouldn't invest it with any other meaning at this point. It's the same word that's used in chapter 8, verse 17 of Daniel. Michael says to, or Gabriel says to Daniel, son of man. And then he begins to explain a vision to him. Psalm 8 begins this way. What is man that you are mindful of him? And then uh, in parallel, the son of man that you visit him. Son of man means man. It, what da Daniel saw was someone who looked like a human being. A man like you and me who appears before the Ancient of Days. And he was given authority, glory, and sovereignty, power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The four animals, the four kingdoms that precede him are destroyed. His kingdom is not destroyed. Last forever. And we ask, what does all this mean? Which is what Daniel asked. We, like Daniel, uh, are troubled and disturbed. Daniel says, I was troubled in my spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. And I approached one of those standing there, that is one of these attendants, the retainers that are gathered around the throne, and I asked him the true meaning of all of this. Now you'll notice there are actually two questions that Daniel addresses to the uh, to this member of the, of the heavenly court. First question is, what is the meaning of all of this? What does the entire vision signify? And then he asks a three-pronged question, beginning with verse 19. He wants to know the true meaning of the fourth beast, the ten horns, and the little horn that emerges from the, from the ten horns. Let's take up the first question. Verse uh, 16, I approached one of those standing there and asked him the true meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms that will arise from the, from the earth. But the saints of the Most High will receive the, the kingdom, the final kingdom, and will possess it forever, yes, forever 
and ever. You know what strikes me about that interpretation is how simple and terse it is. We get all hung up on the details. The angels don't. He boils it down to a very simple fact. These four animals represent four kingdoms, but there's another kingdom coming that will endure forever, and the saints will possess that kingdom forever and ever. Apparently this angel had never read the late great book. He didn't know anymore, perhaps. Now, from our vantage point in history and from the book of Revelation, we can begin to piece uh, piece this together and perhaps add a little bit of detail. And here's where things begin to get fuzzy. And here's where we begin to disagree. First question is, what are these four kingdoms? Since he identifies the, the beasts or the animals clearly as kingdoms, what are they? And by the way, it's significant to note that these, are, uh, that these kingdoms are depicted as beasts, as animals, rapacious predators. Something very evil and sinister about them. And uh, they are described here as, uh, as four kingdoms. What are they? Well, the, the winged lion is obviously Babylon. There's hardly any question about that. Daniel lived in that uh, particular era when, when Babylon was in ascendancy and then during its decline. And as I said, he outlived four, uh, four kings of Babylon and, and, and the nation, the kingdom of Babylon. And he identifies it. Uh, he doesn't identify it for us, but we can. The winged lion is... Is Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. There's some fluidity about these prophetic books that flow back and forth between the kings and kingdoms. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar put winged lions all over Babylon. They find these great stone lions that he carved out of had carved out of solid rock. He put winged lions in, the, in friezes, reliefs, all over the city of Babylon. That was, the winged lion was their mascot. So there's hardly any question that we're we're looking at at the uh, Babylonian Empire described here as a winged lion. And then as Nebuchadnezzar, who has his winged plucked, wings plucked and who is caused to stand on his feet like a man and is given the heart of a man. That's a symbolic description of his conversion. This is why I think Nebuchadnezzar became a true believer. Because he's described here as a real man. I've said before, it takes God in the beginning to make a man or woman, and it still takes God to make a man or woman. That's how we become real men and real women. It's when we acknowledge the sovereignty of God in our life. That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. So we're not talking about the ten woodsmen who wanted a heart. We're talking about Nebuchadnezzar who was given a heart. In our terminology, we would say this is a new birth, a conversion. It's given the heart of a man. It's made a man. God made a man out of it. So uh, the, the winged lion is Babylon. The second beast must be Medo-Persia. That's the empire that uh, succeeded Babylon. Babylon was uh, brought down by Cyrus and the Medo-Persian uh, armies that besieged the city of uh, Babylon. It's described here as a bear raised up on one side because Media was the dominant kingdom for a while after Sar uh, Cyrus came to the throne. Uh, Persia was the dominant kingdom. Has three ribs in his mouth, which most people identify with the three kingdoms that the Persians subdued to come to power, the Lydians, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. They are the victims of this uh, the kill. And then uh, the third beast is described as a leopard, and that must be uh, Greece, which came to power uh, late, uh, early in the 4th century B.C. and lasted until the 2nd century B.C. The leopard here must be Alexander the Great, who in less than 12 years conquered the world. Amazing man. He was 21 years of age 
when he began his conquest in 334 B.C., 21 years of age. And as you know, he conquered the world, by his world at least, by 323 B.C. He died at 32 years of age, a broken old man, a drunken derelict who had no, no, no kingdoms left to, to conquer. The interesting thing about this, this description is that we're told he was given authority to rule. One of the anomalies of history is how a 21-year-old man with only 32,000 troops conquered the Persians, whose army numbered in the millions. He literally ran roughshod over the Persians, defeated them at Granicus, at Issus, and then at the headwaters of the Euphrates, and he rolled across Persia. There's no explanation for that historically. 32,000 men. How'd he do it? Daniel tells us. He was given authority to rule. That's the key, that's the key to history throughout the book of Daniel. It's God who, who drives these, these political forces. And then the final beast the, beast, the fourth beast, is described here, terrifying, frightening, very powerful. That has to be the Roman Empire that came to power uh, in the Middle East, at least, in, in the middle of the, of the second century B.C. and endured until the fifth century A.D. So that has to be uh, has to be Rome, this composite beast, and it uh, shared the the characteristics of the beast that preceded it. We're told in verse twelve the other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. All of the culture of the uh, Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks flowed right into Rome. And that's why it's described in, in the book of Revelation as a composite beast with the body of a leopard, the feet of a bear, the mouth of a lion. The authority of these kingdoms that preceded Rome was taken away, but their cultural influence lived on in Rome. So we know who the four kingdoms are, or at least we think uh, this fits. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Takes us right down to the New Testament era, to the time of time of Christ. Now, who is the Son of Man? In the vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And again, we're not at a loss to know who this is because our Lord Himself uses that very phrase in Matthew 24 and applies it to Himself. He says, You will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory with power and with great authority. So it's our Lord who is the Son of Man. That is a representative man, the man who took our place on the cross and then was resurrected from the dead and ascended to glory and was, was given a position of authority and power at the right hand of, of God. And then who are these saints? Down in verse uh, 18, the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom. Well, as someone has said, there are really only two, two kinds of people in the world. The whole world can be divided into two categories. There are the saints and the ain'ts. The saints are the people of God. That's all. They aren't anybody special. They aren't particularly pious. They haven't been beatified or, can, or canonized. They, they, are, they are just common, ordinary, garden-variety people who have come to realize that they need God in their life and have submitted their their hearts to Him. In the Old Testament, they're the people who looked forward to the coming of God's Son. And in the New Testament era and in our era, it's the people who look back to the coming of God's Son and who have put their faith in Him. We're the saints. If you put your faith in Christ, 
you're a saint. Even if you're struggling and having a hard time of it, as far as God's concerned, you're, you're one of the people of God. You're a saint. Just a bunch of bunch of beggars that know where the handout is. We know where the soup line is. We know where to where to go for for help. We're not those that haven't made. We're those that can't make it. And we've gone to God for help. And the whole point of this story up to this point, as I see it, if we read verse 17 carefully, the whole point is that states come and go. But the saints go on forever. They're like these little cubie dolls with lead bottoms. So you keep knocking them over and they pop right back up. Political powers come and go and they look awesome and they're terrifying and they frighten the wits out of us. But uh, the saints just keep right on going. They're going to last forever. That's all he's trying to say. So if you're a saint, your destiny is secure. Nothing can touch your relationship to God. I've, I, I, I've always... Uh, been intrigued by the way Jesus put it. He said, you know, life's going to be tough for you saints. They're going to persecute you. They're going to ostracize you. They're going to throw you out of the synagogues. They're going to give it, make life hard for you. They're going to kill you. But not a hair of your head will perish. Isn't that interesting? They'll do their worst to you, but they can't really hurt you. States may come and go. But the saints go on forever. Now, uh, Daniel is disturbed about this uh, fourth beast and the ten horns and the little horn that uh, uprooted the three that preceded it. The horn, I'm reading now verse 20, the horn that looked more imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. We know this little horn must be uh, a king or it could be a kingdom or it could be both. And it has eyes, which is a symbol of intelligence. And it has a mouth. And when it speaks, it, it brags. It's arrogant. It speaks boastfully. And uh, as Daniel is asking the question of his interpreter in verse 21, the dream is going on. He says, as I watched, this horn was waging war against the saints and defeating them, killing them, until... That's the key word, until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in favor of the saints, that his justice was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came when they possessed the kingdom. So the saints are having a hard time of it until the Ancient of Days puts a stop to it, and then it, it's over. The saints enter into their own. They possess the kingdom. So he gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is the fourth kingdom that will appear on earth, it will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. Conquest and imperialism is the name of the game for this beast. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king, that's a little horn, will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. Three things he will do. He will speak against the Most High. He will raise himself up against God. He will defy the God of heaven. And he'll oppress his saints. So the, the Aramaic verb to oppress there means to wear out, wear down. Wear out through long-term persecution. And he'll try to change the set times, that is the traditions, and the laws. He'll try to change laws and traditions. 
and the saints will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. Now, that's a troublesome uh, period of time. We're probably going to disagree over that one. We'll probably argue until the Lord comes back over the interpretation of that uh, particular uh, matter. I'm going to carry that one over till next week because I don't want to tango with you this week on that one. But uh, you would expect to see one, two, four in this uh, in a symbolic uh, arrangement of things, adding up to seven, which is a complete number of time. But you get this idea, one, two, half. He's cut off right when he thinks he's, uh, he's won. He's conquered. But we'll, we'll come back to that later. But the court will sit, and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven will be handed over to the saints, the people of the Most High. That's us, guys. We are the saints, the people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. And then as a postscript, Daniel adds something of his feelings about uh, this dream. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Maybe you think uh, the same way. Now, what, what is this uh, fourth beast, which we've identified with Rome, that conquers the world, as Rome did, conquered uh, uh, Rome conquered the world from uh, Britain to uh, the Euphrates in its time. The dominant power occupied more, more land than any of the... Uh, any of the kingdoms that preceded it. We've already identified that that fourth beast, but what is this uh, ten-horn arrangement, and what is this little horn that comes up and, and destroys three as he emerges, and who harasses the saints and kills them, and blasphemes God, and alters the times and the seasons, but who comes to his, to his end. When, uh, when God decides that he's had enough. Who is this? What are we talking about? Well, now, uh, here's, here, here's another, another portion of this text that we're going to disagree on. Okay, So let's just agree to disagree at this point. Let me say there are two major interpretations of this, uh, of this part of the vision. Some would say that, obviously, the fourth beast is the Roman Empire and the ten kings are the ten emperors that ruled at, uh, during, during uh, Rome's heyday, beginning with uh, Augustus uh, down to the time of, say, Domitian. Others would say Vespasian or Titus or one of the, one of the uh, last kings of, of the Roman Empire when uh, she was at her acme. Most would say Domitian then is this little horn. And the Son of Man is Jesus. And this description of his exaltation is a picture of his resurrection and his ascension into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God today, ruling over his kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then my subjects would fight. So he's talking about the church, which, though it may not appear to have power, is in fact the dominant power in the universe today. We are the kingdom that will endure forever. Now that's a, a prominent view. It's one held by many godly men, and uh, men and women, and who are... Uh, excellent interpreters of Scripture, and I hesitate to tilt with them, but I will. Now, let me tell you what I think, and uh, as I say, this is not gospel, but I want to tell you what I think is happening here. Now, I want to get hysterical again. Uh, when I start talking about history, two things happen to people. 
either their eyes light up or they close. Uh, so I, I'm not going to take long. Give me five minutes to tell you what I think happened here historically. And then we'll move on to more profitable uh, 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 things. You notice that, that this fourth beast is not identified as Rome, per se. It's simply a fourth beast. It's a fourth kingdom. I think that what Daniel saw is what we would call today Western civilization. Now, let me tell you what happened to Rome. Most of you know this. If you've ever taken a course in Western Civ in high school or college, then you know what I'm talking about. After the death of Constantine's sons during the time of Theodosius, the Roman Empire divided into two, two empires. The Eastern Empire centered around Constantinople and the Western Empire around Rome and Italy. Eastern portion of the empire endured until the 15th century when the Turks destroyed Constantinople. The church, the Orthodox Church, the center of the Orthodox Church, and the Eastern Roman Empire was taken off to Russia. And it endured there until 1917 under the Tsars. And the word Tsar is simply a, another form of the word Caesar. They thought of themselves as an extension of the Roman Empire. The Western form of the Roman Empire endured until the 5th century B.C. And then, as you know, Rome did not, it wasn't conquered, it wasn't overthrown, it just simply eroded away, just collapsed. The Germanic tribes from the north, the uh, Goths, the Vandals, took the culture of Rome back to Germany with them. And the Roman Empire was centered uh, among the Teutonic tribes up in, in Germany until, interestingly enough, 1917. The same year as the revolution in Russia where the Tsar was overthrown. In 1917, the Kaiser, who was the last emperor, and that's another form of Caesar again, that form of government came to an end. So Rome continued on uh, in Europe. The, the Normans, or the uh, Franks rather, took it down into France and Spain. The Saxons took it off to England. And interestingly enough, the Saxon coins that they've discovered have imprinted on them the figures of Romulus and Remus, the two feral children that, you know, mythological children who were supposed to have founded the city of Rome. The Saxons thought of themselves as Roman. And over in France, uh, Charles I, Charles the Great, the, the fellow we know as Charlemagne, was, was crowned the king of the Roman Empire in Rome in the 8th century uh, A.D. So they, the folks in Europe thought of themselves as Roman, very Roman. They wouldn't call themselves the Roman Empire. But as you know, the Holy Roman Empire as such existed until the time of Napoleon. And that was, the, the whole thing was brought over here to the New World. I just think that uh, Rome has lived on in, in, in Western civilization. Just stop and think for a minute. Our language here in, in the New World is Roman. English is a Romance language. Now, that doesn't mean you can be more Romantic in English than any other language. It just means that it came from Latin as did Italian and, and Spanish. Uh, our, uh, if you look on a dime, you'll see a, the fasces, the little, little axe with the bundle of sticks around it. That's a Roman symbol of corporal and capital punishment. came from Rome. That's where it first showed up. Our buildings are Romanesque. Our federal buildings are Romanesque. Our, our educational system, our judicial system, our political system is Roman to the core. It embodies also uh, Persian, Greek, Babylonian elements. All those other cultures flowed right through the fourth beast, right into Western civilization. So I just see this as uh, what well, some people refer to a revived Roman Empire, but I don't think Rome ever, ever really died. Its culture was simply passed on. The fourth beast lives today. 
We live in the middle of it. And one of these days, one of these days, there's going to be some coalition of nations. I don't know where they are. I don't think they're necessarily centered around Europe. I don't think it's the USSR. I don't think it's the common market, the European economic community. I, I don't know what it is. I don't even know if 10 is, is a, a literal number. It could be a symbolic number. 10 in Scripture in these apocalyptic books refers to, to the number of completion. So a number of nations which make up Western civilization will exist in the end time. Contemporaneously, not sequentially. You'll notice. They exist contemporaneously. And out of that coalition of nations, the man of sin emerges. He's, he's the, the little fellow here. And notice he is a little horn. I love that description of him. He's a little guy who thinks he's someone very important. He's the man that Paul describes as the man of lawlessness. If you turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, you don't need to do that this morning. We're going to look at that passage later on because it will tie into chapters 8 and 9 and, and for that matter, a number of other places in, in the book of Daniel. Paul says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. He's saying there's some secret that uh, people don't know that it's something about lawlessness that's not known unless it's revealed. That's what the word mystery means, the secret of lawlessness. Lawlessness doesn't come from poverty, from lack of education, ignorance, from bad circumstances per se. Lawlessness comes from another source. There's an evil, malicious, hateful enemy of, of mankind who's behind the scenes, stirring up trouble, uh, trying to destroy uh, society and trying to destroy humanity. He is the one Jesus described as a liar and a murderer who hates the human race. And he's behind all the evil in the world. That's why penal reform and social reform and, and laws and education doesn't do any good. doesn't change anybody ultimately. Evil goes on because behind it is this dragon that's causing all the mischief. And... Uh, one of these, you know, this is going on now. He says the mystery of lawlessness is, is happening now. But one of these days it will culminate in what he calls the lawless one. It's one that Daniel describes as the one who will change the times and the seasons and the laws, the lawless one. I think what he's saying is that this anti-God spirit, what, what we call Antichrist, the spirit of Antichrist, is with us now. It's going on in our era. We hear it everywhere. Media. We hear it in our educational institutions. We hear it on the street. It's this idea that man can be God. If you just work out it hard enough, you can be a God. You don't need God to be a man. You can be a man or a woman all by yourself. All you have to do is just try a little harder. You, you can be God. Started in the Garden of Eden. That's, that's the mystery of lawlessness that, that, that pervades society. It's still going on today. But one of these days, it's going to be embodied in one man that we refer to as the Antichrist. He's never exactly called that, but colloquially he's, we identify him as the Antichrist. Paul calls him the lawless one or the man of sin. Jesus said, I, I came in my own name. You didn't receive me. A man will come downstream uh, that uh, on his own name and him you'll receive. I don't think he'll be malicious appearing. I think he's going to be a real sweet, kindly man, sort of like Albert Schweitzer. He's described in Revelation as a little lamb, a little innocent lamb. And he opens his mouth, and you hear the dragon roar. And what the dragon is saying is, you too 
can be God. You don't need God. You can be God all by yourself. And one of these days, history is going to culminate in the appearance of this man who's described variously in the New Testament, but he's, he's the lawless one who's going to oppose God. He's going to shake his fist at God, and he's going to wear out the saints. He's going to persecute them. He's going to kill and uh, he's going to change laws. He's going to relativize everything. And then the Lord's going to say, okay, that is enough. And he's going to come back and he's going to judge you with the word of his mouth. The thing that strikes me about, about these depictions of this great, uh, the culmination of history is that there's no bloody conflict. The Lord doesn't come back and struggle and fight for for months in order to put an end to this sort of thing. He just comes back and says, that's enough. And, and it's all over. It's all over. We have this little dog that uh, looks like a larger than average bottle brush. And uh, she's, uh, she, I heard her yapping out in the front yard the other day and I went out to get her because she wasn't supposed to be out there. There's this big dog down the street. I was just looking at her. She was jumping up and down, yapping like crazy. And after a while, the big dog got enough of it. He just went, rah! And she just turned inside out and headed for home. And I thought, boy, that's a good illustration of what's going to happen one of these days. Man is doing his worst. And the worst man that ever lived is going to be trying to do his worst, shaking his fist at God. And the Lord's going to come back and say, rah! And that's the end of him. Read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people imagine a vain thing? They say, let's overthrow God's bonds. We don't need God in the universe. Let's be God. It says, he who sits in the heaven laughs. Here's this wild anarchy here on the earth and this calm contempt in heaven. And man's efforts to try to overthrow the eternal, eternal order of things. The Lord just laughs. And he's going to come back one of these days and he's going to set it all right. And that's what we look for. I have a couple of observations about this text. The first is that life is not fair. I hope you know that. I, I, I hope you have a realistic view of life. It is not fair. That's the uh, issue that the psalmist struggled with over and over again. Why do evil men get away with their evil? Why doesn't God judge sin? Why doesn't He do something about it? That's all right to say those sorts of things to God. He's not put off when we have these sorts of questions. The psalmist brought all of his angry protests to God, and Job did. Job was really put out at God because of what he thought was his unfairness. And uh, he finally came to the conclusion, as the psalmist did and as we must, life. this life is not fair. It's not fair. We're going to get battered and beat up and we're going to be treated badly and people are not going to understand us and we're going to be ridiculed and we're going to be run out of town and we're going to be misunderstood and we might even be killed one of these days. I mean, why should we think that we're any better off than anybody else than we're around the world? Christians are dying simply because they've identified themselves with the Lord Jesus. Psalm 44 is a, ver is a uh, psalm that's come to have so much meaning to me Lately, because the older I get, the, the more I, the more, more I see that we we just take it in the chops as Christians. Life is hard. 
Let's not fool ourselves. There are times of real joy, but life is tough. And the psalmist saw that, Psalm 44. He's describing some disastrous defeat that Israel had just experienced. They went off to war expecting God to deliver them, and they just got trounced. And they come back to Jerusalem, and, and the king says, What is going on here? Israel used to go out to war, and they'd come back victorious. We went off to war, and all battered, beat up, and bloody. And, yeah, what, there's no aching in the camp. There's no sin. We, we, you know, we've done what we're supposed to do. What is this? And the light dawns. He says, it's for your sake. We're killed all day long. It's the same point that Paul makes in Romans 8. Quotes Psalm 44. For your sake. We're killed all day long. He sees that he's on the right side. That's why. He just happens to be standing by God and Satan is trying to destroy God. And all of his, uh, all those that are associated with him. And he's taking the shots because Satan wants to destroy God. And that's why our families, why we struggle in our families. That's why our, our husbands walk. That's, that's why, why we're persecuted. That's why we're misunderstood. That's why we get sick. We have an evil, evil, evil malicious enemy out there who's trying to destroy God and everyone associated with it. So I just want you to understand, if you're looking for fairness in this life, there isn't much fairness. Life is not fair. But God is. You see, that's what we learn from this from this text. Life is not fair. But God is. And one of these days, He's going to come back. And He's going to set everything right. And that is our blessed hope. Our blessed hope is not that we'll graduate from high school this uh, June and then everything is going to go well for us or that we'll graduate from college or graduate school or whatever. Our blessed hope is not that someday we're going to be recognized and our worth will be realized. The blessed hope is not that we're going to get married this year or unmarried. It's not that we'll have a child or that we'll get a raise or be promoted. The blessed hope is not May 23rd when trout season starts. It's not that we'll have a winning season this year. It's not that we'll get our act together finally and we won't have to struggle with sin in our life. The blessed hope is that one of these days our Lord Jesus is going to come back, the Son of Man, who has already received his power and his authority, and he's going to put evil in his place, and he's going to give us the kingdom, not because we deserve it, but because we've committed ourselves and trusted ourselves to him. And then we're going to enter into our own. I read this last week of a conversation that Billy Graham had with Conrad Adenauer, the former chancellor of West Germany, now deceased. Mr. Adenauer said to uh, Billy Graham, Do you uh, believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Mr. Graham said, I do, sir. Mr. Adenauer said, So do I. He said, Do you believe that Jesus is coming back to reign? And uh, Mr. Graham said, Yes, sir, I do. Mr. Adenauer said, So do I. And he better come soon. Because that's the only hope for this world. And I have to agree. I think we all have to agree as Christians. If we're realistic, uh, you know, our happiness comes and goes, and there are good times. But realistically, life is not fair. The only fairness is when the Lord comes back and He gives us what's right. 
and I have to say with the early Christians, Maranatha. That was a, a sort of a buzzword among the, among the early Christians. They were being persecuted and life was really hard for them. And they used to say to one another when they'd pass, Maranatha. It's an Aramaic expression. Mara, Lord, nah, please, tha, come. Lord, please, come. I have to agree with them. I'm ready. I hope you are too. With John, we need to say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're ready. We're waiting for you to come. We're not going to put our roots down in this world. We're not going to expect much from this world. We know that that we have another destiny, another home. We're simply strangers and exiles here. And we'll enjoy what comes our way, Lord. But we, we're going to look forward to that ultimate joy when we stand before you. And we receive the kingdom that you won through your death and your resurrection. That's what we look forward to. Lord, as we gather around this table this morning, we want to remember your death and remember that that's what made it possible until you come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.